Jens Ludwig is the Edwin A. and Betty L. Bergman Distinguished Surface Professor at the University of Chicago, the Pritzker Directory, Director of the University of Chicago Crime Lab, and Co-Director of the University of Chicago Education Lab. The work of these research centers has helped inform policy decisions by the city of Chicago about how to deploy social programs and to help gun violence control in the city and how the public schools might respond to pandemic-related learning losses. Crime lab projects have also helped inform New York City's efforts to close the Rikers Island Jail without compromising public safety, New Jersey's landmark criminal justice reforms, and the Illinois Attorney General's consent decree with the Chicago Police Department, and have also been featured in national news outlets and the New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, NPR, and PBS NewsHour. He served on the National Academy of Sciences Committee on the Neurobiological and Social Behavioral Sciences of Academic Development and its applications, and is an elected member of the National Academy of Medicine and the National Academics of Science. Say all that three times fast. And... <laughs> Um, so happy to have Jan's with us. We do have some questions up here. If you have questions, Jan is here somewhere. Amanda, there's Jan. If you want to get them up and have a chance of getting your questions asked, Jan, Amanda's going to pick up a few of them now. I feel like we should just have an afternoon with Jan's, like, you know, like a seminar, because there'd be so many. You guys think so? Yeah, just so many questions, right? We just sit and, you know, he's a Chicago and we could just have him talk all day. Um, so without further delay, because I'm eating into your time now, Jens Ludwig. Uh, thanks so much for uh, thanks so much for having me. Thanks so much, everybody, for uh, for coming out. I originally was um, was very excited when we talked about the the date of uh, of this talk. Uh, we were in the middle of the Omicron very, uh, wave when we, we picked the date. I thought for sure I'd be giving this talk in a mask because one of the things that I've discovered about my talks is people tend to like it much better when I'm wearing a mask. I've never gotten uh, course evaluations as high as I did this last quarter, but just my luck. Just my luck, uh, my talk is the first one that uh, is back to normal here at the City Club, which uh, in many other ways is, is great. So what I wanted to do... Um, today is talk about a problem that we're wrestling with here in Chicago, but not just here in Chicago, which uh, is crime, but, but not really crime. So if you look at these headlines, it's no accident that they're all not focused on crime generically, but focused on one type of crime specifically, which is gun violence. Okay, so we have a tendency to think about uh, all crimes as interchangeably similar in terms of uh, the burdens that they impose on society. But that's very much not the case. There's one type of crime in particular that imposes the vast majority of the social harms on society. So if you look at shootings and murders in particular, so something like 80 to 90 percent of murders in the United States are committed with firearms, they account for something like 0.2 percent of all crimes in American cities, but something like 70% of all the social harms on crime. And part of that is what you think, the devastated families and communities of the people who are victims, but the victims aren't the only victims. We have 
tens or hundreds of thousands of people all across the city who were afraid to leave their homes at night and in many neighborhoods during the day as well. And as you know, we have gun violence is one of the major drivers of population loss from cities. There's no, it's no accident that the neighborhoods that are emptying out in Chicago are the ones on the south and west sides that are most afflicted by the gun violence problem in our city. Moreover, we've made almost no long-term progress on this problem. So if you look at mortality data in the United States, for almost every leading cause of death in America, death rates have plummeted since 1950, with two exceptions, cancer and gun violence. You can see that the murder rate per capita in the United States today is, if anything, a little bit higher than it was back in 1950. And the situation looks even more grim if you look here in the city of Chicago. So one of the things that people in Chicago like to say is, well, you know, it's not great now, but at least it's not like it was in the early 1990s at the peak of the crack cocaine epidemic. And, you know, if you live in a predominantly white neighborhood in Chicago, that's true. If you live in a predominantly Hispanic neighborhood in Chicago, that's a little bit less true. If you live in a predominantly black neighborhood in Chicago, that is very much no longer true. The murder rate per capita in Chicago today in our predominantly black neighborhoods is notably higher than it was at the peak of the crack cocaine epidemic in the early 1990s. Okay, so what I want to start off thinking, thinking about or talking a little bit about is, is why we're here. Okay, and my argument is that one of the reasons that we're in this state right now is that we framed the problem the wrong way. We've been thinking for the last 50 years about the nature of the gun violence problem in America through the long, wrong lens, and that's led us to have lots more gun violence than we really need to have. Okay. Now, what is that frame that our public policies have been built on the last 50 years? It is, in effect, that the gun violence problem is due to bad people. You can see this in survey data for, for the last 50 years, majorities of Americans uh, at different points in time, when asked what the causes of crime are, give some version of bad people, immorality, whatever, okay? And it's no accident that literally every person in this room has heard the term super predators, okay? So that has been the animating force behind so many of our public policies in the United States as a whole and here in Illinois as well. How's that been going for us? Well, we've built, we've managed to build the largest prison system in the world, in the United States. We have the highest incarceration rate per capita. We have the largest prison system of any country in the world. You can see Illinois is right there with the rest of the U.S. And as everyone in this room knows, the burden of incarceration in the United States falls very disproportionately on our communities of color. Okay, so our policy response has been enormously costly to the most socially and economically disadvantaged communities in the country as a whole and in our home city of, um, of Chicago. Now, there's something... So notice you wouldn't do that. You wouldn't put somebody in prison for life if you thought they were capable of change. The only reason you do that is because you are convinced that, that people are engaging in gun violence because that is the essence of their nature. The only thing that you can do is take them off the street forever. 
right? It is baked into what we've been doing for 50 years. There's something funny, though. There's something funny about this view that gun violence is driven entirely bad, by bad people, which is it turns out that it doesn't really fit the facts. So one of, my, one of the first research projects that I was ever involved in 25 years ago at the start of my career, you might look at me and say, Jens, you look so young. How could you be doing research for 20? <laughs> you guys are just too nice. <laughs> I'm not fishing for compliments, but keep them coming. Um, so 25 years ago, I got involved in studying a program by the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development called Moving to Opportunity. This operated in five U.S. cities. One of them was Chicago. And what it did is it enrolled families who were living at the time in some of the most distressed public housing projects in the country. And in Chicago, that was the Robert Taylor Homes. So this is a picture of the Robert Taylor Homes from State and Garfield Boulevard on the south side, not very far from where I live in Hyde Park. And what it basically did is it helped families move, some families move to more affluent neighborhoods like Hyde Park, where I live now, which is just a couple miles to the, to the east of that location. And so what's interesting about the moving to opportunity demonstration is that they had way more families who wanted to move than they had housing vouchers to enable them to move. And so as a fair way to decide who got the chance to move, they essentially flipped a coin to decide who could go which winds up creating, because who stays and who goes is decided by a coin flip, you wind up with two otherwise comparable groups of families who are identical in every way, except that one group winds up in a very different neighborhood environment. That, in practice, turns out to give us something like a randomized control trial of the sort that the Food and Drug Administration requires for any new medication to be brought to market. Right. This is how you know your COVID vaccine is safe, because the FDA requires this level of rigor of evidence. Now we have something like this to answer a public policy question. So here's what's also interesting about moving to opportunity is if you believe, if you believe that crime is due to the intrinsic character of people, this shouldn't make any difference at all. Right? Moving three miles to the east from State and Garf uh, Garfield Boulevard to wherever in Hyde Park doesn't change your intrinsic character. Interestingly enough, another thing that didn't change for the families in moving opportunity was their incomes. Income didn't change at all for the families as well. So what happened then when we looked at the outcomes for the kids in these families, what we saw is basically a 40% reduction in violent crime arrests. Right? So... What this is a very, very powerful, I think undeniable, irrefutable demonstration, in my view, is a radically different sort of perspective on the whole gun violence problem, which is not that the problem is intrinsically bad people, but that this is in large part about the situations in which people find themselves. Okay. Now, to see how the situation matters and what we might do about it, I think for me, it's really useful to uh, start off with a, a really clear view of what the gun violence problem in America really is, because it looks very different from what you would see in like media representations of The Wire. You watch The Wire and you have some mental view of like premeditated gang hits as part of some war between two drug selling organizations over drug selling turf or something. Right, That's the mental image that you would get from consuming media in America. That's 
actually not at all what gun violence in America really looks like. So let me just very quickly talk you through one example. This happened a couple miles from my office at the University of Chicago at 73rd and Coles Avenue in uh, South Shore a few years ago. It's a Saturday afternoon at uh, three in the afternoon. There are two groups of kids standing in the middle of the street arguing with one another over whether a kid in one of the groups has stolen a bicycle from a kid in another group. A bicycle, which on the south, you know, if you go to eBay on the south side of Chicago, the resale value of a used bike is about 10 bucks. If it's a nice bike, maybe 50 bucks. The two groups start to separate, so there's no self-defense rationale for what happens next, which is somebody pulls a semi-automatic handgun out of their waistband, fires into the other group, hits a 16-year-old kid named Jamal Lockett in the chest, EMS comes, races him down Lakeshore Drive to Northwestern's ER. The University of Chicago had not opened their ER at that time, where the kid's pronounced dead. Two weeks later, the police arrest a 17-year-old named Calvin Carter as the shooter. That, that is what gun violence is in Chicago and every other American city. The large majority of gun violence in America stems from altercations, Right. We do not have a crime problem. We have a gun violence problem. We don't have a gun violence problem. We have an arguments with guns problem. All of the gun... So, huge share of the gun violence starts with words, could be de-escalated, but instead people take it the other way, and eventually it ends in tragedy because someone's got a gun. Okay. Now, here's another way to sort of see the importance of the, of the situation. Um, one of the things that is so unusual, one of the many ways in which America is such an unusual country is that our murder rate is so much higher than you see in any other rich country. You know, you have to go to very low income countries in Central or South, South America to see murder rates per capita, anything like what you see in, in the U.S. Every other rich country in the world, this is unheard of. Suppose for the moment you thought really what was going on is, is Americans are just horrible people. Here's the funny thing about that perspective. If you look at the rate at which people die of murder in America using means other than guns, so if you look at the non-gun murder rate per capita, almost identical across countries. Almost identical across countries. The difference, the thing that is uniquely American here stems almost entirely from the difference in gun murders. The thing that's different about America is our social frictions lead to tragedies because we have so many guns in circulation. Okay? Now, what I want to do is I want to, to try and give you some sense for uh, how situations can contribute to social frictions leading to tragedies. What I want to try and do is talk you guys through an audience participation game, okay? So what I'm going to do, this is the professor in me. Um, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you um, a slide with an object in the, in the middle, and I want you to call out the color of the object, okay? So we'll do a very easy one as a, as a warm-up. Okay, everybody ready? Black. First of all, it's black. <laughs> Second of all... Second of all, I, I feel like I, I took a nap and woke up in a schnoshna city like New York or San Francisco. We can do, we're the city uh, that works. We're the city of broad shoulders. We can do much better than that. We can do much better than that. This is only going to work if people are actually engaged. Let's go. Otherwise, it's going to be 10 points off for all of you. And I will 
my dean is right here. I will do it. She knows. Okay, here we go. Okay. So if you've ever... Oh, lots of you can read. That's Congratulations. That's great. We're also the city that reads. Perfect. Um, so if you've ever taken a psychology test, a psychology class, you'll recognize that as one of the most famous experiments in psychology called the Stroop test. So what the Stroop test illustrates is one of the most important findings in psychology and behavioral science over the last couple of decades, which is that our brains work very differently from the way we think they do. All right. And so if you've read Danny Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow, you'll be familiar with these ideas. Thinking the way we normally imagine thinking, like deliberate cognition where we're really thinking, is enormously mentally taxing. And so for that reason, all of us try and avoid doing it. All of us, like without exception. Every single person on the planet tries to minimize the amount of time that they really think. Okay, And what we do instead is we try and develop automatic or what psychologists call system one responses to situations that we see over and over again so we just don't have to think about it, right? And so we develop these automatic responses to be adaptive to situations that we see over and over and over again. Okay, now in the Stroop test, in the Stroop test, what is something that we, so what is the Stroop test illustrating? What is something that we see over and over again in our daily lives? We see text, Okay. Now, imagine a world in which you had to pause and consciously think about whether you wanted to read text every time you see it. It would be exhausting. So what you do instead is you develop an automatic response because that works most of the time. But sometimes it gets you into trouble when you come across an out-of-the-ordinary situation. Okay. Right. The Stroop test is putting you in an out-of-the-ordinary situation so you can see how the situation can trip you up. What does it have to do with gun violence? Well, one of the things that we know, one of the things that we know, unfortunately, from a large body of research in sociology and talking to kids and parents and teachers and social workers all over the city, is unfortunately in under-resourced neighborhoods in Chicago and other cities around the country, kids learn very quickly that they're on their own. That's what it means for a neighborhood to be under-resourced. The adults in the neighborhood are overwhelmed by the challenges of the neighborhood, and kids learn that when someone challenges them out on the street, they have no choice but to push back. Because if they don't, if they give someone their lunch money today, tomorrow someone's coming back for their phone, everybody's nodding their head because you've... Everybody knows this as well as I do. And the day after that, they're coming for their coat and and on and on, right? Now, that automatic pushback response is normally adaptive, unfortunately, for kids. But sometimes you come across an out-of-the-ordinary situation when someone's, like when someone's got a gun in their waistband, okay? This is a very, very important insight. So why do we see more gun violence in some neighborhoods than others? Well, for starters, there's some neighborhoods with way more illegal guns, Okay, but the other reason is some neighborhoods are just more simple to navigate and less complicated. So I live in Hyde Park. The University of Chicago puts private security guards on every street corner. My teenage daughter is walking somewhere. Someone demands her lunch money. What's the automatic adaptive response for her to develop? Give someone the lunch money, walk 50 feet, tell the security guard, right? And 
she doesn't have to do any thinking at all to navigate Hyde Park, right? That's the perfectly fine adaptive response to every situation. It's not that teens are different, fundamentally different across neighborhoods. It's that their environments are very different in terms of the social challenges that they present to kids. Okay. Now, what does that then lead you to think about what we should do to address this problem? Um, one of the most important and obvious things to do is to address the challenge of gun availability in the United States. So we are a country of something like 330 million people. And as best we can tell from the available data, we have something like 400 million guns in circulation. That's 400 million guns in circulation. Okay. Um, the, I spent the first 25 years of my life trying to understand how we could try and make progress on this, on this challenge through gun regulations. The other thing that I spent the first 25 years of my, uh, my career on is trying to understand how we can do something about the problem of economic and, and racial segregation in cities like Chicago, but not just Chicago, which leads to so many communities being under-resourced. You could hardly imagine two more important policy priorities for Chicago and every American city. Unfortunately, those are going to be long-term challenges to address, right? If you are the mayor of Chicago or Baltimore or St. Louis or Oakland or Philadelphia or Newark or Camden, on and on and on, the question that you have is, what do I do for June 2022? We get calls all the time at the University of Chicago Crime Lab from people all over the city, all over the country. What do we do for June 22? Okay. And we can't wait. We can't wait for years or decades to address these really important but really, really difficult structural challenges that we have in society. So what can we do instead? So I think... A more optimistic kind of actionable view, for me, really, um, uh, my sort of thinking about what we could do in the short term really changed a lot during a visit that I, was, I made a few years ago to the Juvenile Temporary Detention Center on the west side of Chicago out on Roosevelt Road, where I was talking to one of the staff leaders there who said, uh, he said, you know, I, I always tell the kids, so this is where, uh, if you're arrested as a juvenile in, in uh, Cook County, this is where you're held awaiting adjudication of your case, okay? So he said, I always tell the kids in here, if I could give you back just 10 minutes of your lives, none of you would be here, which I think is a really profound mindset shift in the nature of the problem and very consistent with the idea that the problem that we're trying to solve is not crime, is not gun violence, it's arguments with guns. Okay, so what would that look like in, uh, what would that look like in practice? Well, um, let me just briefly talk you through an example of, of the sort of thing that, that this can look like, okay? Um, so this is an exercise, uh, this is the very first exercise that kids do in a program uh, developed by Youth Guidance uh, in their program called Becoming a Man. This was the very first program that the crime lab studied when we started. So let me just very quickly talk you through what this looks like. Um, so let's say that uh, Dwayne, my friend Dwayne and I are paired up. We're in BAM participants. We do this during the school day. And we, uh, they pair us up and they give one of us a rubber ball. 
So they give Dwayne the rubber ball for starters, and they say to the program leader says to me, you have 30 seconds to get the ball out of Dwayne's hand. Go. The only rule is there are no rules. So what do I do? I'm a 16, I, my wife would say I often act like a 16-year-old, but hypothetically, I'm a 16-year-old high school kid in this, in this scenario. I try and pry Dwayne's hand open for starters. If that doesn't work, I might start punching him in the stomach, put him in a headlock, you can imagine. Group leader says, all right, all right, switch. Now they give me the ball. Dwayne basically does the same thing to me for 30 seconds. And then the group leader brings the kids together and does a debrief and says, Jens, what strategies did you try to get the ball out of Dwayne's hand? And I say, well, first I tried to pry his hand open. I think I broke his finger and, and maybe his pointer finger as well. Um, and then I blah, blah, blah. And then the group leader will say, why didn't you ask him for the ball? When you talk to the people at Youth Guidance, they, they've done the program now with thousands and thousands of kids for the last 10 or 12 years. And remarkably few kids ever ask. And then, so why didn't you ask Dwayne for the ball? For the ball? And I'd say, well, if I had asked him, he would have thought I was a, you could imagine what the kids say. And then the program uh, leader will turn to Dwayne and say, Dwayne, what would you have done if Jens had asked for the ball? And Dwayne would say some version of, I would have given him the stupid ball. It's much better than having two of my fingers broken. <laughs> you can see, it's very clever, very engaging. There are ways to help kids anticipate in advance when the situation is going to trip them up. Okay, And we've been doing research for the last 10 or 12 years. It's not just the Becoming a Man program. We've been working with uh, Children's Home and Aid and YAP to study programs that do something similar like Choose to Change or Heartland Alliance on their Ready program. We consistently see evidence. The evidence is not perfect, but we consistently see signs of really large reductions on the order of 30, 40, 50, 60% reductions in violence involvement for people enrolled in these programs, right? What those programs are basically helping people do is understand and anticipate when the situation is going to trip them up and interrupt that sort of unhelpful, uh, unhelpful trajectory. And similarly, we can see in the larger research literature, there are lots of examples of things in data that show that they can externally intervene and interrupt violent events as well, right? So, you know, sociologists believe one of the most important things to prevent violence is neighbors and neighborhood organizations that bring people together to help enforce shared uh, neighborhood norms. Um, it's the same sort of logic behind violence interrupter and street, uh, street uh, outreach organizations. And ideally, that's also even what our government institutions should be doing as well, like police departments, right? And what's interesting about this is like you look at this at first blush, it's like a weird grab bag of seemingly disparate, like random programs. But once you sort of see what the problem is that we're trying to solve, arguments with guns, you can see all of these are acting through the same underlying kind of causal pathway or channel here, right? Now, you might be looking at this and saying like, well, this is great if, you know, you're about to tell me like this is going to require us to double the city of Chicago budget if we want to like whatever is this can we actually do anything about this so um we did like a very illustrative back of the envelope calculation let me just very quickly uh talk you through this there will be a quiz on this at the uh at the end um 
So just illustratively, one of the things that you can see in data, I think this is not just true for Chicago, but it's certainly true in Chicago, is that if you look at the shootings that are going to be committed next year, when you look in data, something like 25,000 people today predictably will wind up accounting for something like half of all the shooting arrests next year. Very, very concentrated within the population. And social service providers and government agencies have a reasonable sense for the who, who the people are at highest need and highest risk right now, okay? And we also have this accumulating body of evidence that there are social programs that are effective and have capacity to scale. Um, so let's assume that we've got a cost of like $25,000 per person, 50% reduction in violence. That would mean that $625 million would get you something like a one-quarter drop in gun violence in Chicago, we also know that there are a bunch of street outreach, security guards, uh, police, other organizations that can externally interrupt. If you look at the data on the relationship between policing and violence, it suggests that something like a 25% increase in the police department budget would get you something like a 25% reduction in violence. Suppose that you, you don't need to invest in the police department, Suppose, but suppose that you said, I'm only going to invest in something, violence, interruption, whatever. I'm only going to invest in things that at least have the same ROI as police. So that sets the floor. What that would mean is for $425 million more, you'd get another quarter reduction. So for a billion dollars, we could cut gun violence in Chicago in half, illustratively. Now, you might think a billion dollars is a lot of money. Is it worth it? Well, one way to think about a billion dollars is it's about 5% of the city budget. And depending on you, how you count, it's between 1% and 2% of the state budget. Now, are there more important things that we could be spending our money on instead? I don't know. I don't know. I mentioned before that gun violence is one of the most important drivers of population. Set aside for the moment the horrible human cost of the problem, even set that aside for the moment, gun violence is one of the most important drivers of people out of cities, including Chicago. Here's a little graph that shows population. It's normalized uh, city population normalized back to 1950. So every city's 1950 population is normalized to be 100, 100% of their 1950 population. You can see that New York City lost something like 10% of its population during its more difficult period, and now they're up about 10%. You can see that the city of Detroit has lost something like two-thirds of its population since 1950 which you can see if you drive around the city of Detroit, where is Chicago? Where is our home city? We are right, I would describe Chicago as right on the knife's edge. If we don't get this, what we do right now to address this problem, I think will shape the future of the city of Chicago for the next 70 years. Thank you very much. Was, that was great. Um, just so much to think about. We have a lot of questions. I'm going to try to get through as many as possible. Um, when you're talking about the one billion, um, Eva Giglio from the CME Group Foundation, where do you think there are gaps in the current gun violence strategy, which you've discussed, but how can philanthropy play a role? 
Yeah, I, uh, so I, I think that one of the, one of the challenges is, uh, being really focused in addressing the gun violence problem. You know, I, I have a, one of my very dear friends, when I sent him the, the, this slide deck uh, for comments in advance, said, Jens, I, I love you dearly. He didn't really say I love you dearly, but I'm sure I was reading between the lines and I assume that's what he meant. Because then he went on to say, this is the worst talk I've ever seen you, I seen you give. I said, Oh, that's very interesting. Tell me more. He's like, you didn't even use the word root cause once. And that's very intentional. It's very intentional because to me, the, the term root cause obscures more than it clarifies, right? Because if you think that the solution to the gun violence problem is root causes, it gets you into the mindset that any anti-poverty spending will be equally effective in addressing the gun violence problem. Now, and I think we just need to be very clear, like, if we want to, we definitely need to address poverty, right? Like, this, so drive around the city of Chicago and you can see how desperately we need to address the poverty problem in our home city. We can't expect, it's too much to expect literally everything that tries to address poverty to also solve this other giant social problem of gun violence, Right. And so I'm trying to be very, very deliberate and not paint with a very broad brush. And I think the more that we can do. And, and so I would also just point out, right, that getting the gun. So I'm trying to not paint with a broad brush so we can be very, very targeted about what the problem is and what specific things would do to address it. Because, you know, if we can get the gun violence problem under more control, you can see in cities like Los Angeles and New York that have done this. In, in the early 1990s, LA, New York, and Chicago had almost exactly the same murder rates. Over the last 30 years, the murder rates in LA and New York per capita fell by something like 80 or 90 percent. And you can see those cities have completely taken off. So getting the gun violence problem under control is not just a major public health priority, a major humanitarian priority. It is also a massive tailwind for trying to address all of these other social challenges. Imagine, yeah, anyway, so. <laughs> okay, well. I, yeah. I, I forgot we weren't really going all afternoon, sorry. Uh, we, we may have to schedule, uh, you know, part two. Um, Lewis Markowitz from the broader group. What non-public health pandemic effects do you think will be the most impactful in future years? Non, non-public health pandemic effects? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, um, you know, uh, I think that we are seeing, we are seeing one of the reasons that gun violence is up 30% since uh, 2019 in the United States is the pandemic. So the CDC did a survey last, um, uh, the CDC did a survey last summer and they asked people about uh, mental health problems caused by the pandemic. And something like 40% of all American adults said that they had were struggling with substance abuse, depression, trauma, anxiety as a result of the pandemic. If you look at the youngest age group they looked at was 18 to 24-year-olds. If you look at 18 to 24-year-olds, 70% said they were suffering some mental health problem. And fully... Fully one in four 18 to 24-year-olds in America said they'd consider suicide. 
the last 30 days. Okay. That is exactly the age group that is at highest risk for gun violence involvement as well. So it's no surprise that we're seeing so much of a spike in, in guns. So that's the short-term problem. But the longer-term problem that makes me really nervous as well is all of the data that we're starting to get in about learning loss caused by the pandemic now that schools have been testing over the fall and we're starting to see the results. Because one of the most important protective factors against violence involvement specifically is a high school diploma. And we have kids, you know, if we had lots of money, what we really should have done is just started kids over. You know, if you were in eighth grade in 2019, 2020, we're going to start you over in eighth grade again. The only, re- the only reason I can think of that we're not doing that is that we don't have the school capacity or the money to do it. We are shortchanging millions of kids across the country one or two years of their education, and we don't have any systems in place to ever catch those kids up. And I think that's the thing that has me like really, really worried for the, for the long term. Really all positive here. Um, so. <laughs> but important. Um, Raymond Pollock, MD, with um, Hypocrites Consulting. How do you propose that issues of culture can be overcome to deal with gun violence? For example, machismo, violence as a mean to resolve conflicts, no matter how trivial. Yeah, I, um, you know, I, I think the, the, the way that I would, the way... I'm very intentionally sort of describing this as situation. So if I think about, I, I was brought up in, uh, I was born in Germany. So I think of culture as something that like you bring with you. I was born in Germany. My parents were born in Germany. They raised me just like German parents. And I have all of the, like whatever of, you know, someone raised by German parents that was, that was there for us in Germany. That was, uh, that was there for us in New Jersey where I grew up. But think about the moving to opportunity experiment. Right. Think about the moving opportunity experiment. I'm taking someone from State Street and Garfield Boulevard and I'm moving them two or three miles to the east into Hyde Park. And all of a sudden they're 40 percent less likely to be involved in violence. That's not culture or something that resides in the person or the family. That's people adapting to the social environment in which they find themselves. Okay. Um, Adal Regis. From Congresswoman Robin Kelly's office, what role can the Illinois congressional delegation play in addressing the issue of gun violence? And a not related but sort of question is, when will urban crime, urban slash crime labs begin to advocate to amend the Second Amendment? Sorry, let me see this one again. Uh, let me ask the first separate, answer. The first, yeah, yeah, perfect. So I think, um, you know, wh- one of the things that I think is in so one of the things that makes a uh, uh, a government response to the gun violence problem so difficult is how much of the the gun violence is driven by by men between the ages uh, like teenagers are disproportionately involved but a lot of it is driven by men between the ages of say 18 and 30 18 and 35 and we have very intentionally since the 1930s in the United States built a social safety net that intentionally excludes working age men, right? If you look at where the federal dollars go, that are, it's defense, and then it's basically money for old people and women and kids. Notice who's missing. So there's long been an assumption 
that working age, age men will be working. Now, maybe that was a very reasonable assumption in lots of different places and lots of different time periods, but the Sun-Times published uh, statistics a, a few years ago that showed among black male 18 to 24-year-olds, something like 45% were not working or in school. We clearly have, if you see that in France, you say something is really screwed up with the French economy or some sort of system, systemic problem there. That's equally true here in Chicago. We need to both try and fix the systemic problems that are causing it, but also recognize that we need much more of a social safety net for that population than I think we've, we've historically appreciated. Okay, so... I'm going to do two more questions. Obviously, we're going to need you to come back with within the next few months, definitely within the year. So, okay. Um, Dwayne Deskin, City Club member. Um, experts say that economic sanctions on Russia will take years, if not decades, to work. In the meantime, the killing will continue. Is this the same timeline and outcome for prevention of gun violence in Chicago? If not, why not? Perfect. Maybe that's a great question, uh, question to end on too, so. right? Yeah. And, and, and it's a great question to end on because it's, it's fundamentally optimistic, right? I think, um, I read an op-ed in the Chicago Tribune, um, from the, from the 1990s about the death of Yummy Sandifer on the far south side of, of Chicago. This will be a story that's familiar to many of you. And, you know, the thing that was among the many things that was heartbreaking about the Yummy Sandifer op-ed in the Tribune was, the, the sense of hopelessness in the op-ed, right? It's like the, the, the editorial board of the Tribune, you can see in the op-ed, they're looking around, and it's like, what is causing the violence? And they basically say everything. And it's even worse than everything. It's like, it's everything, and it's everything that's interconnected. And so, you know, they're like, you can't even push on one thing or pull on one thing because it's so unavoidably whatever, whatever. And then you're just like, we're, we have no hope. That's, in many ways, that's the worst thing. Right? In many ways, it's the loss of hope that's the worst thing. And so I think what is fundamentally optimistic is we're starting to accumulate a body of data and evidence that says, while we are working on these much longer-term challenges, there is also concrete, pragmatic things that we could do in the short term to really, really change this horrible problem, this horrible and uniquely American problem that we're struggling with. All right, let's let's give a big round of applause for Jens. <laughs> <laughs>